welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along to Gateway. Thank you for coming. We appreciate that you take time out of a busy weekend to be with us. Um, If you come regularly, you'll know that we've been involved um, for about four or five weeks now in a series talking about what it means to cultivate a life of radical, pervasive generosity. Now, whenever you announce that you're going to do a series on generosity, nearly everybody's thoughts immediately talk to, uh, turn to money. And, and this whole subject of generosity, of course, includes money. And, and I, I actually am unapologetic about that. How you deal with your finances, with your resources, is a vital part of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, it may well be a a litmus test of sorts, given that finances was the subject that Jesus spoke most about during his ministry. Generosity, however, is more than money. It's definitely not less than, but it's more than money. What we're talking about is developing a life of uh, deep unselfishness that affects every area of our lives. And I've said a number of times in this series, there's more than one form of currency. uh, Money isn't the only medium of exchange. There are various currencies and and, uh, mediums of exchange. And it's actually possible to be relatively generous in one form of currency and yet be radically ungenerous in other forms of currency. Um, You can, for example, give money to somebody, but actually what you might be doing is using that money to keep that particular person or persons at a distance relationally. So oftentimes we would rather give a person $20 and get them to go away than we would to ask about their story, invite them for a cup of coffee, spending time emotionally, relationally with with them. We call that checkbook charity. Just give some money, get them off the scene. So, so far in this series then, I have talked about generosity as it pertains to our economic resources. Last week I spoke about generosity in terms of our words, the need to speak grateful, kind, encouraging words. This message is about generous hospitality and what that might look like. And before you think, oh my goodness, Martha Stewart or Nadia Lim, I can do without this, um, just don't don't tune me out just yet because it's actually not along those lines. And I know for many the subject of hospitality conjures up the idea of fine table settings, expensive china, gourmet food, fine wine, all the while in an architecturally designed house in an exclusive suburb. This has got absolutely nothing to do with those things, okay? What we are going to do is look at a parable that Jesus told from Luke chapter 14, and I want to bring basically kind of three points out of it, or touch on three areas as it pertains to this parable. The parable is found in verses 7 through 14 in uh, Luke chapter 14. I'm reading it from the message translation. You'll notice it drops into two parts because Jesus, first of all, speaks to the guests, and then he speaks to the host, all right? So it starts off, he went on to tell a story to the guests around the table, noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor. He said, when somebody invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host, then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. Red-faced, you'll have to make your way back to the very last table, the only place left. 
When you're invited to a dinner, go and sit in the last place. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come up to the front. That will give the dinner guests something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're gonna end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, then you will become more than yourself. Then he turned to the host. So first of all, he addressed the guests, then the host. The next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kinds of people who will return the favor. Invite some people who never get invited out, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. You'll be and experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. So I want to look at three things, the cultural background to the story, then I want to talk about the desire of the guests to be inside the inner ring, and finally to the host and the whole issue of what actually constitutes biblical and generous hospitality. So first of all, look at a little bit of the cultural background to the story. Now, the story is, of course, essentially Jewish, but heavily influenced by uh, Roman customs as well. Palestine has been under Roman domination for six decades and, and counting. Okay, so the Roman influence is very, very strong, and Palestine was a mixture of both Jewish and, and Roman influences. So when it starts off in verse 7 in the King James, it says, Jesus marked how they chose out the chief rooms. Now, most of your translations, if you're looking at one, it'll say they chose the chief seats. But I wonder that the good old King James might be an accurate translation here. Because archaeological studies have shown that the houses of this period, influenced by the Romans, often had a special dining room that could accommodate up to 10 people. And it was called the chief room or the triclinium. Outside the triclinium, outside this chief room, was another space called the atrium, where as many as perhaps 30 to 40 people could all sit on couches. So the atrium allowed people who were excluded from the chief room to at least be able to see what was going on in that room, even if they weren't included in it. Society at this time, as it has been pretty much for most of all history, was very, very hierarchical there was a very definite and distinct higher class and of course a lower class. Very little in the way of a middle class. Middle class is very much more of a modern concept. But there were within these two strata, the higher class and the lower class, more stratification. So in Roman society, for example, the upper, the upper class had a very distinct hierarchy. At the top of the totem pole was the emperor and his household. Beneath him were, were what's called the senatorial class. This was made up of the nobility, the wealthy aristocrats, who were immediately distinguishable in public by their dress because they wore tunics with, with broad stripes. After and beneath them was the equestrian class, which actually has nothing to do with horses at all. The membership of this class was based largely on economic metrics, especially the ownership of property. And these people were distinguishable in public because they wore tunics with narrow stripes. Now in the lower class, there was also more stratification. The highest of the lowest class were the commoners or the plebs. They were freeborn Romans, farmers, craftsmen, shopkeepers, and in public they would wear simple Roman togas. Beneath them were the freedmen. These were people who had previously been slaves but managed somehow to either buy their freedom or had their slavery manumitted by their owners. 
They weren't distinguishable at all by dress. You possibly might know them by virtue of their name. At the bottom of the heap were the slaves. They were the very bottom of the social food chain. So even though it was a Jewish setting, uh, rather than a purely Roman one, there is very, still a very, very clear distinction between higher class and lower class. Um, there was a very clear pecking order. And when you were invited to some kind of feast, whether it was a marriage feast or a festival party, it was clearly understood that it would be the high-class people, the people of the upper echelon, who would get the seats in the triclinium, in the chief room. They would get the pick of all that was being offered, the best food, the best wine, the best service. Perhaps the best way for us to think about this would be in flying, whether you were flying cattle class or, or managed to uh, get business class or even beyond that first class. And uh, if you've had the opportunity to fly in those different ones, you know the service difference remarkably as does the food and everything else. So in the triclinium then, the guests got the best of everything that was on offer. In the atrium, the couches were arranged in proximity to the host's table. And the more you knew the host or were valued by the host, the closer you got to sit to the triclinium. So that's the background to the story. Jesus notices all of these guests elbowing and trying to make their way into the top position and perhaps even be invited into the triclinium. Jesus' advice to those people, by the way, is if you're not sure where to seat, guess down. Rather than sit yourself in the triclinium and then be invited by the host to make your way out. Actually, the background to that is found in Proverbs chapter 25 in verse 6 and 7 where the message translation says, don't work yourself into the spotlight. Don't push your way into a place of prominence. It's better to be promoted to a place of honor than to face the humiliation of being demoted. And that's a profound biblical principle. You know, the Bible says in a number of places, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As I was thinking about this, I thought how totally counterintuitive it is to our self-promoting culture with its inflated CVs, its airbrushed photos, and its pop mottos of put your best foot forward, believe in yourself, promote yourself. Jesus gives us another piece of advice. There is another piece of this cultural setting that we'll consider when we come to Jesus' advice to the host, but let me speak for a moment to what's going on in the hearts of these social climbing, status-conscious, jostling guests. And this very human phenomena uh, has never been better spoken to than by the person C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis spoke about the incredible human tendency to pursue entry into what he called the inner ring. Now, as we pursue this, you might be wondering, I'm not quite sure how this all relates to generosity, but I'm hoping the connection will become obvious because the illicit obsessional pursuit of some people to be in that inner ring will ultimately make you an incredibly ungenerous kind of person. Human communities are characterized by groupings. Sociologically, such groupings are unavoidable. You get more than 10 people together and within a very short period of time, you're going to have an, an inner ring. I, I think it's normal, it's, what part, it's part of what makes us human. 
Um, I, don't, I think they're morally neutral. It's just the way we are. And whether it's at your place of work or the industry that you're involved in, whether it's your club, whether it's your faith community, a sports team, a patch gang, a music group or a band, always there are groups that form within the group. I mean, you know, where there's four people, you know, you think of the Beatles, without doubt there was an inner ring, Lennon and McCartney, without without were George Harrison and Ringo Starr. Sometimes that was a point of great difficulty for the two people who were on the outer. These rings aren't normally formal structures. Now, at your place of work, there may well be a formal wall chart that defines authority and power, and at times, that may accurately depict the real inner ring. Surprise, surprise, sometimes the wisest and most energetic people actually do occupy the highest places in the organization. However, formal charts don't always depict reality and they aren't always a representation of the real authority and the real, if I can put it this way, innerness of an organization. I think probably all of us know or perhaps even have worked in settings where the person with the right answers worked for a person who didn't even know the right questions. Mostly, the inner ring is an informal grouping. There are no formal admissions or formal expulsions. Most often, you only gradually discover that an inner ring actually exists as you are made aware, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, that you're not inside it. It's not always easy to identify who's in and who's not. Some people are obviously in and other people are obviously out and there are always people on the margins moving, either in or out. Some people think they're in and are obviously out and provide endless amusement to the people who are really the insiders. If we're on the outside, we often look at these inner rings and describe them in disparaging terms. We talk about their clickishness and other things. As I say, I think sociologically speaking, um, all this is rather obvious. Personal friendships will and, and probably should always develop. I think even Jesus had an inner ring, Peter, James, and John. Now, Lewis points out that inner rings are normal and morally neutral, and yet he observes they can become very dangerous. And as an example of this, he says, the painless death of a pious relative at an advanced age is normal and not evil. But, he says, an earnest desire for her death on the part of one of her ears is not reckoned as a proper feeling. And the law frowns upon even the gentlest attempt of that heir to expedite her departure. So, some things are normal, not evil, but the way we respond to them can actually be quite evil. Inner rings are unavoidable and even an inner, innocent feature of human life. However, our illicit and obsessional longing for being inside an inner ring and our tormented uh, anguish when we are excluded from them may well be quite dangerous and ultimately will at the very least make us very ungenerous people. I think if most of us considered this somewhat and were honest, we'd have to admit that the desire to be found inside an inner ring at some particular time, and maybe even now for some of you, um, is, is one of the driving forces of your thinking and of your life. Lewis 
made the claim that this obsessive desire to be inside the inner ring was one of the, was one of the main springs of human action. And it is most certainly what Jesus is dealing with in this parable, as people are jostling to be in the inner ring. And the illicit and ungenerous pursuit of membership in an inner ring has been responsible for so much struggle, so much competition, so much graft, envy, and disappointment. In the musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr is one of the story's main characters, and if you know the story or if know the history. He was obsessively consumed with a desire to be inside a particular ring. It was a political inner ring. And he called that inner ring the room where it all happens. And that drive and desire to be inside that room consumed him and led him astray. The desire and pursuit of an inner ring has often been portrayed in, for example, Victorian literature. If you're into you know, Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice and some of that literature, you'll know there were characters who were haunted and tormented by the desire to get into a particular ring that they often called high society or just simply society. And you can think of Jane Watson and Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, or Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair, or Rosamund Vinnie in George Eliot's Middlemarsh. These were classic social climbers. And we might despise their snobbery and yet be completely unaware that we are being devoured by a desire to be part of an entirely different inner ring. We, we might not covet or even be mildly interested in an invitation from a duchess or from someone else in high society. We, not, we may not be particularly drawn to drink champagne with MPs or other political movers and shape, shakers. What we covet is the little attic, the garage, the studio, or perhaps the gym with those four or five people who are really on the cutting edge, who are really in the know, who are really in the room where it happens. You might be sitting there saying, Don, I really don't know what you're talking about. And I would want to respond to you, you liar. Of course you do. Every single one of us knows this phenomenon. I'm sure you can think back to the inner ring of your high school years, the attractive girls, the cool guys. Perhaps it was a ring that finding ourselves on the outside of, we responded to with mockery and scorn. And sometimes that scorn reminds me of Aesop's fable of the fox and the grapes. You may remember it. The fox tried without success to gather some grapes off a vine. And rather than admit defeat, he stomps off claiming that the grapes were sour anyway. Which is, of course, where we get our phrase, sour grapes, from. You know, the irony is, as long as we are being driven and governed by our pursuit to get inside an inner ring, it will always elude us. You're actually trying to peel an onion, and if you succeed, you'll find that in the end there's nothing there. Merely wanting to be in is a pleasure that can never last, and you'll find that circles do not have from within the charm that they appeared to have from without, and the rainbow will always be ahead of you, and the old ring that you once desired and pursued ungenerously now ends up the drab wallpaper of your endeavor to enter the next, just beyond you, new ring. As I mentioned, people who are driven to enter the inner ring can never afford to be unselfish or generous. They function with a zero-sum economy. If somebody gets in, they're out. 
And so you can't afford to let them get in and you be on the outside. And by the way, that lack of generosity might actually be the least of your problems. The desire to be on the right side of that invisible line often prompts us to act in ways that without that desire we would never have even contemplated. At a simple level, I think all of us recognize the number of people that started either smoking, drinking, taking drugs, lost their virginity, uh, uh, in their desire to be in the inner ring are, w- are without number. You think of what gang, young gang initiates do in order to be part of the inner ring. Now we might imagine, well, we'd never do anything like that. However, some of us with shame and embarrassment can remember that we neglected and sacrificed a friendship of a person that we really loved and might well have been a friend for a lifetime for somebody who at the moment, at that particular moment, seemed more important and more cool. And we may well remember with embarrassment the actual pleasure that we derived from the loneliness and humiliation of an outsider after we found ourselves admitted to the inner ring. Perhaps we publicly made a point of talking to the members of the inner ring in the presence of outsiders so that they would know we were in and they were out. Lewis profoundly stated, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. You know, the passion for the pursuit of an inner ring is antithetical to and destructive of generous hospitality because it inevitably involves exclusion. There would be no attraction to an inner ring if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most of the people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It's the essence of the pursuit of the inner ring. And in this parable, Jesus is speaking pointedly to this human obsession to be in the inner ring. In essence, he's saying to these socially climbing, jostling guests, the quest for this inner ring will break your heart unless you break it. Lewis observed that unless you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. Having talked to these guests about the pursuit of the inner ring, he then turns his attention to the host and he says, when you put on a dinner, don't invite friends, brothers, relatives, rich neighbors, they'll return the invitation. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the godly, God will reward you for inviting those who can't repay you. This just needs a little unpacking culturally. First of all, you need to understand that Jesus is using a classic um, Semitic idiom, which is, he's, he's not saying literally, you, you can never invite your friends, you can never invite your relatives, although for some people with interesting relatives, that might be a command that you would quite like to be there. This is the same kind of thing when Jesus was saying, listen, unless you hate your mother or your father, you can't be my disciple. He wasn't telling people to hate their mother and father. He's, he's using idiom. It's not to be taken literally. It's kind of, you know, compare this with that. So um, idiom language. Secondly, in the culture of this time, there existed what is called the patronage system. In such a system, particularly in the Roman setting, there were patrons and clients. The higher class individuals acted as patrons for people beneath them on the social ladder who were the clients. And there were well understood obligations flowing up and down the ladder. 
So in such a setup for people who were lower down the ladder, the only way to get higher up was to know somebody significant who might be able to open the doors for you. And you in turn would then be expected to advance their interests in some ways. So what happened was clients invited higher class patrons to their dinners and feasts in the hope that in turn they might get invitations to their parties. These, these parties weren't about genuine without strings hospitality, it's all about strategic networking. You worked your contacts up and down the ladder. So at best, it's networking par excellence. At worst, it amounts to crass manipulation of people. And it's nothing to do with biblical hospitality and that's what Jesus is speaking to. He cuts to the heart of the patronage system and says, my disciples will reject these manipulative, ungenerous ways of using people. And the early church did reject it. They established open, generous, inclusive families that welcomed all. They rejected class, racial, gender distinctions that characterized and dominated the culture of the time. And they were famously known for their genuine and generous hospitality. One of the Roman emperors who tried to stamp out Christianity, appropriately named Julian the Apostate, complained about the early Christians and he said, these impious Galileans by whom he meant Christians support not only their own poor but ours as well. And he went on to complain that their communities welcomed everybody and were a threat to the social order of the day. They opened their hearts and their doors to the poor, the lame, the, the blind, the marginalized, just as Jesus had instructed. And biblical hospitality is always a challenge to the patronage system, no matter how it exists in, in our particular culture. I think all of us recognize the networking that goes on up and down ladders, the crass manipulation of people, the pulling of strings. Jesus challenges that. So finally, and in conclusion, what is biblical hospitality? What is generous hospitality? Well, firstly, I think it's an attitude of heart and it strives for inclusion rather than exclusion. It isn't against friendship and the normal development of what Lewis calls inner rings, but it does recognize the danger inherent in inner rings, and it intentionally seeks to make these rings porous and open, easily entered rather than exclusionary and cliquish. And it isn't just a passive acceptance of people who come your way. All right, well, if you come, come. It actually goes out to welcome the stranger and to make those strangers friends. When you actively reach out to include the stranger, the, the outsider, the poor, the marginalized, the one that nobody will have lunch with, the, the one that's unpopular and that nobody will sit with. When you go out of your way to include them, then what you are doing or manifesting is God's spirit of hospitality because this kind of generous hospitality is an attribute of God. This is what he does to you and me. And the Bible often pictures him as a generous welcoming host in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he speaks to his people. In verse 18 in the Amplified Bible, it says, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the stranger, the resident alien and foreigner by giving him food and clothing. And therefore, he says, show your love for the stranger. Interesting, but in the New Testament, the Greek word for hospitality is philo enexios, which literally means to love the stranger. 
So hospitality isn't primarily about what you serve on your table, but the attitude you have in your heart to be inclusive of people who don't fit your ethnicity, your, your age, your gender, your, your race. You reach out to people who other people are shunning. The, the people who come to our community from, um, from, from other countries can't speak our language. The, the dairy owner, the, 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 the people that are different from you that you just want to get a service from without engaging. This is, biblical hospitality challenges that and says, why don't you just say something pleasant to them? Why don't you speak to them in an inclusive way rather than just taking whatever it is you, you, you're asking for? Hospitality is about opening our hearts to the stranger and those who are different from us. So firstly, it's an attitude of heart. Secondly, it is a practice. Romans chapter 12 verse 13 says in the Amplified Bible, pursuing the practice of hospitality. Well, how do you practice hospitality? Well, can I suggest what you do is you welcome people into your personal space. And that actually might be more than your home. It probably at some point in time will actually include your home or the place where you live. But, but it can be much more than that. It might be equally about other spaces, your favorite cafe, a restaurant, your movie group, your walk-in group, whatever it is that you gather with, with your friends, the place where you are personally refreshed and rejuvenated, and really, truth be known, don't want other people to invade. But actually, you go out of your way to say, why don't you come with us? Why don't you come to the movies with us? Come and have a coffee. Come and go for a walk with us. You say, whoa, I flipped on, that would be costly for me because that's the place where I get refreshed and rejuvenated. Listen, hospitality is always costly. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse nine says, when you practice hospitality, do it without grudging. Do it without complaining. I know that it will be costly for you. It's much easier to stick with people that you know that you don't have to be awkward with, that you don't have to think, what, what am I gonna say to them? How are we gonna converse? What, what if I get embarrassed? Of course it can be costly. But God does it to, to, to us, and he's asking us to do it to other people. You know what, it was very costly for God to offer you and I generous hospitality in order to invite us into the ultimate inner ring. The inner ring, by the way, that when you're in, so puts other inner rings in perspective that the illicit and obsessional pursuit of them is diluted to such a point where you can actually recognize what they are and your illicit desire to be in them is, as I say, diluted and can be washed away. You become part of the ultimate inner ring. The Trinity extends out to you and invites you into the family. You don't get a better inner ring than that, but it was unbelievably costly. In order for you to be invited into the inner ring, Jesus was thrust outside the gate. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, he was excluded. He experienced a radical lack of hospitality and welcome. 1 John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own received him not. They thrust him out. But that rejection opened the door for the ultimate inner ring for you and I. That inner ring is open and porous for all who will come. 
one of the words of knowledge that I was going to read to you a bit later on, um, our prayer teams were praying and, and they just said, we felt like that there'd be a couple of people here tonight or some people here tonight that are ready to enter that ring. Maybe you've been coming for a while, you haven't started your journey with Jesus, but you recognize a genuine, warm, generous invitation to enter the inner ring of God's family. And they were saying, why don't you do that tonight? They would love to pray with you. I'm gonna invite our team to come and just close with worship. For those of us who have tasted the generous hospitality of God, there is now the call and the mission to be co-hosts with Jesus to a marginalized and alienated world. He's inviting you and I to be hosts of the same generous quality that he is. And I wanna challenge you tonight. What's your inner ring? The place where you are rejuvenated and refreshed, where you would probably rather other people weren't, and it's easier, it's easier to exclude than include. But generosity, that radical, pervasive, unselfish generosity that actually opens up our space, not just our money, but our space, our emotional space, our relational space. That cafe where you meet with that couple of friends, it's just such a rewarding place and you don't want anyone else to be there. But you say, come. It's open, it's porous. I, I think the call of God for generosity involves all the currencies of our lives. And some of us sitting here tonight, I think the Holy Spirit is challenging and saying, I wanna open up the porous circle that you've created to other people. Will you allow me to do that with you and through you? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.